All right, it's 12.30, so let's begin. We always want to be on time and get everybody out of here on time. So our commitment to you is it's a one-hour event, so you can get back to work. <clears throat> Keep making that cheddar. So we are in Numbers chapter 29. We've been looking at the holidays, the feast, the calendar of Israel. And chapters 28 and 29 lay out the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly celebrations, Israel's calendar. Now, the holidays that we're looking at are spelled out elsewhere, um, back in Leviticus 16, Deuteronomy 20-something, I can't remember exactly, but we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, they're all spelled out, and they give you more detail about these feasts, these holidays. But in this section, <clears throat> remember... They're being reiterated to the second generation of Israelites. Okay, so the ones who heard these directions before, they also watched their parents die in the desert of disobedience. And so this generation now is getting re... Uh, the covenant is, is being reaffirmed to them, retold. In fact, the entire Deuteronomy is going to be basically that. That's what the word Deuteronomy means, second law. They're going to hear the law again. They're going to get it for the second time. <clears throat> and this, all of this calendar, all of these calendar events presuppose Israel in the land. They presuppose Israel not only in the land, but in the land and receiving and being blessed abundantly in their crops, in their agricultural products, in their wealth in general. So this is what they're hearing, <clears throat> and this is being told to people who have literally spent their entire lives in the Judean desert. Not even the Judean, excuse me, in the Sinai desert. So this group that's hearing this, they have no... Some of them may remember coming out of Egypt because they were under 20. So there could have been some who were teenagers, you know, older that came out. And they can remember Egypt. But even, even in Egypt, they didn't experience any of what God's demanding of them in terms of these feasts. And they were slaves. They lived on whatever they could scratch by. So <clears throat> the ones who have lived their entire adult lives and the ones who have lived their entire lives, so to speak, are hearing these commands for the first time and, or, or hearing of this reality that will be new to them for the first time. They've not known anything like it. And so this, it, it's, we, again, we're looking at this through hindsight. So we hear this, these commands, these feasts, and we think, yeah, 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 it's holidays, religious holidays, blah, blah, blah. But this is groundbreaking for these people. It's mind-blowing for these people who are hearing this. And the offerings that are required, the amounts, you know, it's given in hens and ephahs, which we don't use, but an ephah is like two quarts. So when it says, you know, three-tenths of an ephah of whatever, um, or a tenth of an ephah, it's talking about big amounts of things like oil and fine flour. Where are you going to get oil in the desert? Where are you going to get fine flour in the desert? Where are you going to get... No, you're not. You're going to get those in the land when your crops grow, when you plant and you harvest. All of this presupposes that. So even believing that God is calling them to this and accepting it, okay, we can do that, is an act of faith because they're realizing... God's requiring these sacrifices. God does not require anything that He doesn't provide. He doesn't require anything of us that He does not give us the ability to bring Him. And so for them, it's a huge act of faith hearing this, especially these amounts. They would just be mind-blowing. And we looked last week at the spring feasts. 
the spring holidays. So Passover, which celebrates the entire identity of God's people. This is who they are. They, they, their entire existence. Passover for Jews is what... It's not even a good... Passover for Jews is what the cross and the resurrection is for Christians. Like, without it, there's no Jewish people. Without the cross and resurrection, there's no Christianity. Right? Well, it's, it's no coincidence that they happened at the same time on the calendar if Jesus is who He says He was, which is the fulfillment, the Passover lamb, the final sacrifice. So Passover was their first spring holiday, and then 50 days after that, when they would <clears throat> celebrate the bringing in of the uh, barley harvest, that would be Pentecost. And that's what Pentecost means, 50 day, you know, 50 day after offering Penta. Um, and that's when they would celebrate not just the bringing in of the barley harvest, but also in later Jewish tradition, they would celebrate that as the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to His people after they came out of Egypt, when they then met Him at Mount Sinai, which now, as we've seen the past year and a half, they have a portable Mount Sinai that goes with them wherever they are, which is the tabernacle. And so they're going to celebrate the giving of the law every year at that tabernacle. And so that then commemorated the giving of the law, the, the God's entering into a covenant relationship with His people, the Sinai Covenant. Well, again, no surprise, it was on Pentecost that the Holy Spirit descended. That the, 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 the Jewish followers of Jesus celebrating their Jewish holiday of Pentecost and the giving of their Jewish law were filled with the Spirit of their Jewish Messiah, the God of Israel. And taking then that commission out into the world, God entered into covenant with them once again on the very day. So all of the yearly flow of Israel's calendar has significance in terms of the redemptive history of God's people. It's not haphazard. And it just happens to, I use that ironically, coincide with this agricultural calendar. Because why? What did Genesis spell out? God is the God of creation. He's the God of bringing order out of chaos. He's the God of the rhythms of evening, morning, day one, evening, morning, day two, evening, morning, all the way up until what? Sabbath when you have rest. And this rhythm, this flow of creation is seen as the imprint of God on creation. This, this good thing. Even when He created the sun and the moon. Called them the lesser light and the greater light in Genesis. They were for what? for marking the times, the seasons, the festivals. So you can go back and read Genesis and he front loads, he foreshadows even in the creation account what these times, what these lights in the sky are going to be used for. And there were two calendars that the civilizations of the world at this time used. There was the lunar calendar. Every 30 days, the moon is new. Every 30 days, it waxes, it wanes, and it comes back. But then there's the solar calendar, which is not quite every 30 days, it's a little off, the earth goes around the sun once. Well, they spent a lot of time looking at the skies, and so they knew, well, these dates aren't exact, I mean, these two, these greater light and the celestial light, they don't add up exactly. And so, while they would use the sun for counting a year, they would use the moon for counting the months, and that led to some confusion among which group used what. Babylonians would use the sun, the Egyptians, or the Egyptians would use the sun, Babylonians would use the moon. You know, there was both. And that never really got settled until after the time of Jesus in terms of the dates. So when we look back, one of the things to realize is when we're looking back into Scripture, the dates, the, the chronology, we always have to keep in mind that we've got multiple calendars in use and different empires dated things differently. 
There weren't A.D. and B.C., right? We take that for granted. <laughs> but before Jesus, there was no A.D. or B.C. So it would be in the year of such and such, and it'd be like a king. Or in the year of the battle of so and so. And then some kings would do it in the year of, meant the year they ascended on the throne. And then others would be, it would mean the year after they'd completed a full year on the throne. So dates in biblical chronology have been just mind-boggling and head-scratching for people forever. But again, the the purpose of these dates, the purpose of, of this concept of time is not so much so that you can get your calculator out and do these calculations and come up with these secret things that some knucklehead does every year, it seems, about when something's going to happen. Whether it's blood moons or whether it's Bible codes or whether it's some other nonsense that just sweeps through people, you know, kind of creates a little bit of buzz, gets people excited, and then what? Nothing. It goes back to normal. What we have instead are, no, God is giving us this not so we can predict secret things, but so we can recognize and we can worship the God who put these things into place to begin with, the sun and the moon, the one who stretched out the heavens with His hands, the one who waters the earth. It's God, not Baal, not Asherah, not Chemosh, not Malek, the gods of these peoples of the Canaanites who they're going into, but Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's the God in whom we trust to give us the ability to bring forth the fertility of the land. This is all of what God's ingraining in Israel with these festivals. Because look at what He says. We'll move now into the fall festivals. And this is starting in chapter 29. The first one says, On the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It's a day for you to sound the trumpets or a day of trumpet blast. It's an aroma pleasing, as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, prepare a bird offering of one young bull, one ram, and seven male lambs, a year old, all without defect. With the bull, prepare a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil. With the ram, two-tenths, and with each of the seven lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. These are in addition to the monthly and daily burnt offerings, which we read in the last chapter, with their grain offerings and drink offerings as specified. They are offerings made by to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma. So the, f the first day of the seventh month. Now the seventh month, this is, again, this two-calendar thing. It's the seventh month. How can it be? This would become to be the Jewish New Year. This would later become Rosh Hashanah. Uh, but it's the, uh, the festival of trumpets in the Old Testament. This was the beginning of and was seen as the beginning of the year. How can the beginning of the year be in the seventh month? It doesn't make sense. Again, keep in mind this two-calendar thing. You've got a solar year, and then you've got the lunar cycles. You've got the solar year, and then you have the agricultural year. It's really, we, have, we do this all the time, we just don't even think about it. If you're in finance, you know that the fiscal year doesn't start on January 1st for everybody. Or if you're in school, you know that the school year doesn't begin on January 1st. The school year begins in the fall. So there's all these back to school, new school year, it's a new, you know. Well, it's that kind of thing here. There's the, the festival year, the agricultural year, and it begins on the seventh month. No coincidence, seventh, the holy month, the, 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 the complete month. Seven is everywhere in these numbers, all throughout Scripture. So the seventh month, we're going to get started, blow the trumpets, get ready. It's going to be a big month, and it is. So that's the first, then after nine days or so, then verse 7, on the tenth day of this second, of seventh month, hold a sacred assembly 
you must deny yourselves, or the text says afflict yourselves or humiliate yourselves. And based on how that word's used elsewhere in Scripture, it's almost completely uh, certain that it's talking about fasting. Later, the prophets will use the same type of language. It's to, to deny yourself, to afflict yourself, to humble yourself, is to fast. All right, so on this day, Holy Sacred Assembly, deny yourselves, do no work. Present as an aroma pleasing the Lord a burnt offering of one young bull, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bull, prepare a grain offering, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, with the ram two-tenths, and with each of the seven lambs one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering, in addition to the sin offering for atonement, the regular burnt offering, with its grain offering and their drink offerings. So now on this day, we read about this day, this day of atonement, Leviticus 16. If you were here last year, you remember, the whole day is given in Leviticus 16. And so here it's just mentioned in terms of the offering. It's not just the offering. Leviticus 16 gives us, there's a whole thing that happens with the two goats and one, the sins of the people is placed and he's sent out of the camp. He's like the, the, the toxic dump truck of all the sins and evil of the people is sent away out into the desert. God removing their sin entirely. And then the other is sacrificed and that is the offering on the altar in the sense of God receiving their worship. So there's this whole thing about this day that this chapter doesn't go into. But what it does tell us is that this occasion, so you've had the beginning of the new year, or the new calendar year, the new sacrificial year, whatever you want to call it. Now, it's going to, the next holiday that's coming, this one's somber. There's no drink offering prescribed on this day that's poured out. You know, there's no wine, there's no strong drink that's offered with this sacrifice. Those were things of merriment. Those, all, the other sacri- all the other celebrations thus far have been celebratory. This one is a somber day. This is a day of afflicting yourself. This is a day of repentance. It's the only day in, all, in the entire year where intentional sins could be atoned for. And we saw when you were with us in Leviticus that there were intentional and unintentional. There were sins that we didn't mean to commit and we committed, and then there were sins that we meant to and now we're sorry for. Well, the sins we didn't mean to commit, those are taken care of by the sin offering. Those are taken care of regularly by the sin offering. The sins you meant to commit but you're sorry later, you got to wait till Yom Kippur for there to be atonement for those. And that's why this holiday was crucial for the identity of the people of Israel. It was the one day of the year, all the sins of the people, including the high priest himself, laid on this goat and then sent outside the city to die. So there's so much symbolism and rich imagery, but go back and check the Leviticus section on that if you missed it um, on the website. Because we want to get to the last one. And this one I want to make sure we have enough time for. The last one. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, uh, Sukkoth. Different names that it's called, but this is the big one. This is the big one. So, on the 15th day of the 7th month. So, first day, 10th day. Now, on the 15th day, the middle of the month. Hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Celebrate a festival to the Lord for seven days. Present an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. A burnt offering of 13 young bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old, all without defect. With each of the 13 bulls, prepare a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil. With each of the two rams, two-tenths, and with each of the 14 lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offerings with its grain offering and drink offering. That's just the first day. 13. Now, bulls, are not cheap. And they're not just something you come by. I mean, bulls are what you're, if you're, if you're a shepherding people, if you're an, uh, um, 
especially a nomadic shepherding people, but if you're an, uh, livestock is your thing, bulls are the prize. Bulls are like it because bulls can breed with a lot of cows and make a lot more. You just need one bull and breed with a bunch of cows, you get a whole herd. Bulls were expensive. They were the highest offering you could give. And so God's just this one day, 13 of them. That's incredibly extravagant. Incredibly extravagant. But that's just the first day. On the second day, verse 17, on the second day, prepare 12 young bulls, two rams and 14 male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bulls, rams, and lambs, prepare their grain offering and drink offering according to the number specified. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering, grain offering, and the drink offering. So day two, 12 bulls. 13 the first day, 12 the second day. On the third day, prepare 11 bulls. So it goes in descending order. These seven days of the feast, it's going to go in descending order. And you can read through, I won't read through the chapter because it just repeats it, but the repetition is to ingrain this rhythm into the, and this, this overwhelming amount of stuff that's required. The people are hearing it. It's like reading off this huge list of stuff that you can't even imagine affording. And God's saying, yeah, you're going to do this and you're going to do it every year. You're like, what? How? You know, you're going to give a million dollar tithe every year. Okay, that presumes that I'm going to be a multi-millionaire then because there's no way I can give a million dollar tithe. It's, it's that kind of thing in terms of how this would read to the audience. So it goes on the fourth day, prepare ten bulls. The fifth day, prepare nine bulls. Uh, the sixth day, prepare eight bulls. And then it, it hits it so that on the seventh day, you prepare seven bulls. So they meet right at that seventh point. And then uh, verse 35, on the eighth day, hold an assembly and do no regular work. Present an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, a burnt offering of one bull. So just one on the eighth day. Uh, seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bull, the ram, the lambs prepare their grain offerings and drink offerings according to the number specified. Include one male goes a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering with this grain and drink offering. In addition to what you vow and your freewill offerings, prepare these for the Lord at your appointed feasts. Your burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, and fellowship offerings. Moses told the Israelites all the Lord had commanded him. Now, for more on burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, fellowship offerings, we covered that all last year. Leviticus, the first seven chapters, we're dealing with all of these things. So if you missed it, again, hop on the website. You can review on what these are. But this is just summarizing. This festival, festival of, of booths, the festival of tabernacles, Sukkoth, this was to be the day or the, the, the week plus a day in which Israel remembered who they were not to mourn it, but to celebrate it. So they would do, and, and the provisions that are given elsewhere in, in Torah about this is they, were, they would actually make booths. They would make, you know, we say booths, but we think of this, you know, like a booth and a restaurant. We don't, it's a dumb word that we shouldn't use in English anymore if we're talking about this. What it should be is shacks. Make shacks or tents or something like that. That's what they're told to make, the festival of shacks. They're going to live in those for a week. As all this is going on, as the extravagance of the offerings are being presented on behalf of the people, they're living in shacks. Why? To remember where they came from. They can't, the plan, this is the key to this. We think, yeah, we lived in, we, we're going to live in shacks to celebrate our ancestors who lived in the desert 40 days. That's true. 
but why did your ancestors have to live in shacks? Because they were disobedient to the covenant. That living in, in shacks in the desert was never the plan A. Remember? They were supposed to go straight from Sinai right into Canaan. No shacks, no wandering, no 40 years in the, the desert. But because they rejected the covenant, because they rebelled against God with a high hand, they were made to live in that desert for 40 years, living in shacks, living in huts and tents, so to speak. And so God says, he, he weaves that into their celebration. So at the same time that they're celebrating the festival of tabernacles, the festival of shacks, the festival of booths, they're giving all of these offerings, all of this abundance that comes from the land that God is bringing them into. But they're doing so with a very clear reenactment and understanding of the disobedience that kept that entire generation out of that land. So they're holding on to both of these tensions with God. The, the reality of disobedience is recognized. And that's what the shacks are. That's what living in these booths is a reminder. Not of the, 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 the time our ancestors went camping. No, the time our ancestors died in the desert for their disobedience and we, an entire generation, lived grew up in these desert shacks. So that will always be part of that celebration. But at the same time, it's acknowledging that the land that God did bring them into is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of abundance. It's a land that's all the things that God promised them it would be. And so they celebrate that. It's not one over the other. It's not just a big party and it's not just a day of week of mourning. It's a celebration but with the acknowledgement of what they've experienced as a people. So it's a somber. We've talked about this before because it's worth bearing, uh, repeating. We, as God's people, need to be able to do that with our past. Personally, individually, you know, we look at our past and we see the, the, just the crap that we've gone through and we're like, yeah, that's, I don't want to do that again. That was rough. And a lot of it, not all, but a lot of it was through our disobedience or our rebellion. You know, we bring a lot of the troubles onto ourselves. So there's an acknowledgement of that. But even that disobedience is something that God can transform into who we are today, which is then a cause for celebration. You know, I went through hell, but I've come out the other side and I'm actually better for it. God took the worst, transformed it into the best. So on the personal level, there's something to be said about this, looking to the past but not dwelling on the past uh, as we celebrate the present and the future. But then on the corporate level as well, we as people, whatever our people group is, whether we can, you know, if we're talking about our nation, you know, us as Americans or um, our West, us as Western society or us as, you know, our ethnic background, whatever it is, whatever we're identifying with, taking an honest look at the past, not sugarcoating, not whitewashing, acknowledging the sins of our people, whoever our people are in whatever way we're celebrating, and then letting that inform how we look to the future, how we celebrate the future. And that will shake out for people in different ways in different contexts all over the world, all throughout history. But the core principle is the same, is, is, is seeing us as a whole and what God's brought us through. And that's the purpose of these feasts. That's the purpose of these holidays in the Jewish calendar. And it should be the purpose of the holidays in the Christian calendar as well. You know, because the Christian holidays do fall when a lot of these Jewish holidays fall. Seeing where we've come from, seeing what we've gone through, 
with an eye to the future of the God who's going to provide more than we can ever imagine. Seventy bulls were sacrificed in this whole week of celebration. Seventy. That's, that's incredible. I mean, this is not like every family did this. This was like the people as a whole did it. Oh, they almost never kept it at all. Yeah, this is Torah. Torah gets broken from day one as soon as they enter the land. Uh, it, you know, so we're, we're seeing what God's called them to. Not necessarily, and it's the same. You know, we see what Jesus commands His followers to do, expects His followers to do, and then we see the reality of what His followers actually do. And that's a tension that Scripture, both Old and New Testament, puts in our face and says, deal with this. This is what you're called to. If you're here, this is what you're called to. Um, and so there's, that's one aspect of these festivals. The other cool thing about this one, and in the last couple of minutes, I'll just mention this. If you read John 7, this was the week-long festival that Jesus, His brothers are like, hey, Miracle Boy, why don't you go do that at the festival? They're up in Nazareth. They're telling Him, and it's down in Judea. And He's like, oh, my time's not here. You, you just, you, I mean, they're being sarcastic. His, this is when His family doesn't believe Him. And he's like, you guys go ahead. So they go ahead to the festival. It's not a one-day thing. It's a seven-day thing. It's a big thing. Israel gathers. So they go at the festival. All these people are like, oh, is Jesus going to show up? What's He going to do? What's He going to say? And Jesus comes in halfway through. So there's like this couple of days of anticipating. And then He arrives halfway through the festival. And He gets up. And what does He do? He begins to teach. At the time of Jesus... In John 7, fascinating chapter. You can read it. Uh, the, the whole chapter, just keep this context in mind. By Jesus' day, by the first century A.D., there was a practice that would be done during the festival of tabernacles. And the high priest would take water from the pool of Siloam, the, the well, the, the water that came from a spring was called living water. There was living water and then there was still water. You know, water from a pit or a cistern was not living water. Living water was water that was flowing. So the priest would take from this flowing spring in Siloam, he would take some of the water, and there was the tradition of he would you know, hold it up, everybody could see, and then pour it out on the altar or somewhere in the temple precincts. And it was a way of, one, acknowledging that God's going to provide water because your whole life depended on water at this point, and that we thank God for the rains he's gonna give, that He has given for our crops because this is the end of the year, this is the end of the fruit harvest. So we thank Him for the rains He's given and we ask Him to continue and give us more, give the, keep the water flowing, keep the living water flowing. This, this is after Torah, but before Jesus. Well, what does Jesus do in John 7 on the final day of that feast? On the greatest day, it says the final and greatest day of the feast, He stands up. What does He say? I am the living water. Let all who come to Me drink. They'll never be thirsty. He, he takes on the identity of this thing. He's claiming, and it's, it's super blasphemous. You know, who gives living water? God. Who controls the water? God. Who lets people create wine out of what starts as water through the rains and then the crops and then the vine and then the grape? God. But yet in John's Gospel, Jesus is the one who's over those things. What does He do? He walks on the water. What does He do? He says, I am the living water. What's His first miracle? He makes wine out of water. So John, with a megaphone to first century Jewish readers, is shouting, this guy is doing something that's completely on another level than any prophet that's ever been among us. Oh, and it also happens to be the things that only God Himself is said to be able to do in Scripture. And, th and that's when Jesus is 
kind of starting to take on that public persona of, hey, I'm not just the Messiah. I'm the Son of Man. So it's, a new te- it's just a, a neat little inference. Go home and read John 7, but have in the background this holiday, and it will give you a new understanding, a different flavor of, of what's going on. But we've got to wrap up. The point is, in Israel's keeping of these, or intending to keep these yearly, daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly feasts, one of the things that they're doing is, I'll read, there's a great study note. I, I rarely read the study notes from different Bibles, but this one this is in the Archaeology Study Bible. There's a great note, and I'll end it with this. It says, the rhythms of time for worship, especially festival time, are a rejection of death and the impact of the fall. The rejoicing and sharing associated with the feasts asserted the quality of life and the value of community and affirmed the goodness of God's original creation. The rhythms of time for worship are a return to the creation principles in that redeeming the time in this way conquers the chaos and recovers cosmos or order in the fallen world. And this was very much at home in the Hebrew mind, was this celebration. Even in the midst of sin, the reality of sin, there were sacrifices at all of these things. And there were whole burnt offerings at all of these festivals. But along with those which speak to the sinfulness of humanity, there was this lavish celebration and feasting and merriment and drink offerings and even some strong drink offerings. Wine and liquor. You know, there, I mean, it was, it, there was... It was partying, but a godly partying, at least it was intended to be. By the time of the prophets, they would completely have bastardized this to the point where God says, I hate all this. I hate what you're doing. Stop. I don't care. You know, but as it's intended, at least, it was the bringing together of the two realities. Reality of sin, living in the shacks, and the reality of what God does through creation, providing all of the agriculture, all of the abundance. And then all of those things would be culminate in when God Himself steps on the scene in the flesh of a human carpenter from Galilee and He says, I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. I'm the temple. I'm the Passover sacrifice. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. These are all images that were applied to either God or Israel in the past. And Jesus, God as Israel, steps in and says, yep, and it all points to me. So next week, we'll move into, he's going to talk about vows, because there are vows you can make. These were just the required celebrations. God expected his people would give more than the required. The tithe was never the cap. The tithe was the baseline. And then the giving was to go beyond that. And so next week, we'll talk about some of that stuff as well. But we are one minute and 30 seconds over. So get out of here. There's food if you want some more. If you're interested in coming and seeing the place where all this stuff happened, Grab a flyer and check out this trip that we're doing next year to the Holy Land. Love to have you with us. Have a great week, everybody.